prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our, our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. The sad music of this great psalm befits the dirge of a fallen world because it preaches man's mortality in immortal words. That's how one author described Psalm 90. And it's an apt description, because here we have a meditation, a meditation on humanity's temporal nature in light of God's eternal nature. But not only is Psalm 90 a meditation, it's also a prayer. Better, it's a meditation that in the end leads to prayer. And so now as we begin our own meditation, here's what I want us to do. I want us to begin with the hard news, the sobering news of this psalm. That news being that we can't truly understand ourselves or our world unless we grasp the reality that our Creator is angry. Verse 7, we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we're dismayed. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. That's the sobering news of this song, that God in His anger has reduced humanity to rubble, that his wrath is manifested in the frailty, frustration, and the futility of our existence. Under the holy heat of God's anger, humanity wilts and withers. This is the sad truth of our human condition, and it's a condition that we can't ignore, though we often try. And we try because it's unpleasant and unpopular to ponder God's anger. 
Hence the reason the psalmist asks the question he does in verse 11. Who? Who considers the power of your anger? Do you? Do, do we consider God's anger? Well, the world certainly doesn't. And seldom does the church. And the psalmist knows this. And that's why in this psalm, he sort of rubs our noses in the inescapable truth that God's anger is real and that it's revealed in the brevity as well as in the many miseries of life. Because here's the thing. The Bible always deals with reality, not with fantasy land. We want fantasy land, but the Bible continues to give us reality. And because it does, what it gives us here is a sober assessment of our existence and our experience in this life. And again, this is a reality is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable thing to ponder, but it's absolutely necessary that we do because without a sober assessment of God's anger, we'll never gratefully grasp the surprising nature of God's mercy. His mercy that alone can bring beauty out of ashes and life out of death. This psalm knows that without divine chastisement, there is no divine comfort. The comfort of knowing that the God who rightly manifests his anger is the very same God who remembers and keeps mercy for his people. Now, when we look at verses 3 to 11, which are really the meat of this psalm, it's obvious that the psalmist is talking about how God's anger is manifested in death. Death in all its varied forms. How God's anger is displayed in our demise. But what's interesting here is that the psalmist never actually mentions the word death. Instead, what he does is he gives us images to make the point. Verse 3, with an obvious allusion to Genesis 3 and the fall of humanity. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Literally, children of Adam. In his anger, God has issued an unbreakable command to every human being from Adam onward, and it's the command that we must all return to the substance from which we were made. Each of our lives, in sobering, each of our lives will one day be reduced to a little pile of dirt. Verse 4, that no matter how long we live, even if we were to live to a thousand years, our lives are merely a drop in the bucket, a dash between two numbers. And this is especially so in the sight of God. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. The greatest, the longest life is minuscule in the sight of the eternal God who according to this psalm, in his anger, verse 5, sweeps us away as with a flood. Our lives, our lives are like Middle Eastern grass, grass that flourishes in the morning, but then the sun's blazing heat, well, it quickly fades and withers. Now, those of you who are younger may not recognize this just yet. You hear these words and go, oh, okay. But those of us who are a little bit older, that are a little, little past our prime, a little past our flourishing, 
Uh, we're experiencing the sobering reality that we flourish but for a moment, and then comes the decline, which means every human life will eventually wilt and wither, and we're powerless to prevent it. No matter our exercise, or our diet, or our cosmetics, or our medical advancements. And the reason is because, verse 7, we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we're dismayed. We're confounded and confused because the fact of impending death has injected into our lives a sense of futility. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. The years are soon gone, and we fly away. And in the context of Psalm 90, it's not, I'll fly away, O glory, it's, I'll fly away, O misery. For God's judgment of death rips and ruptures our existence in such a way that every life from the greatest to the least ends in the same way, with a gurgle and a sigh. But not only is death reserved for the end, it's also at work from the very beginning and throughout our lives. Death in its manifold forms is the reason for our difficulty in the world. About this, Calvin said, we people are like dry grass. We could perish at any moment. Death is very close. Yes, it's as if we're actually already living in the grave. And assuredly, when someone examines the situation of life, which is the very thing the psalmist is wanting us to do, when someone examines the situation of life from cradle to grave, he finds death. Death manifested as burdens, as difficulties at every stage, worries, annoyances, sorrows, fears, illnesses, and inconveniences. And then Calvin adds, the leaving of the mother's womb is an entrance into a thousand tombs. Now consider that for a moment. Every annoyance Every frustration, every feeling of anxiety, every in inconvenience is actually a form of death, which means in this world, none of us, no matter our age, whether we're young or old, we're constantly confronted with the reality of death, which means in this life, we continually walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which sadly, according to this psalm, is a product of God's anger. But that should raise the question, why is God angry? Why are humanity's days marked by God's wrath? Well, we're told in verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, even our secret sins in the light of your presence. Even our secret sins. The things nobody in this world knows but us have been set in the light of your presence, which means there is a justifiable reason for God's anger, and it's our sin. We live, each of us live under the judgment of death by nature because we've rebelled against our holy maker, and rebellion against him who is life always leads to death. We die because Adam sinned. And because we ourselves sin. 
By nature, we're sinners deserving the severity of God's anger that's manifested in death. The death of dreams, plans, relationships, bodies, and ultimately death as separation from God. Death itself is a logical judgment in the sense that the essence of death is a return to nothingness. Here's something else to consider. God brought us into being from nothing that we might find our everything in Him, in His sufficient and eternal life. Therefore, to turn away from God, who is life, is to turn to nothingness. It's to turn and return to no life. Sin is the reason we begin life spiritually dead. It's the reason for our distress and dehumanization in the present. And sin, living apart from God, is the reason humans eventually are reduced to earthly dust and apart from God, eternal damnation. It's because of sin that we naturally pass away under God's wrath. And again, the psalmist says to us, have you considered this? Have you considered the power of God's anger towards sin? General sin as well as particular sins, public or private, large or small. Do you, do we recognize that all we deserve, all we deserve for seeking to live apart from God is his justifiable anger and wrath? This is the sobering news of this psalm. News that we're called to ponder because, again, God wants us to live in reality. The reality of his hatred towards sin. But thanks be to God, Psalm 90 doesn't end there. It would be a dark day if that were the end of Psalm 90. Psalm 90 does not simply end with the sobering news. Yes, it proclaims it. But it does so not to leave us in utter despair. Rather, it gives us this sobering news to deepen us in the realization of God's mercy. For amazingly, the same God who judges also provides saving shelter. And that brings us secondly to the surprising news of this psalm. That the God who wounds us for our sin heals us in his mercy. How does he heal us? Well, by offering himself to us. Offering himself to us as our saving and sheltering home. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. In the midst of life's toil and trouble, amidst our fleeting and fading existence, the claim of this psalm is that there is only one sure and unfading hope, and it's God himself. The one who's promised and shown himself to be, for his people, the secure home that we need. That he's shown himself to be the secure home for all who stop running from him and instead turn to him. Because you see, to run is to stay under God's wrath. But to turn is to experience and know his mercy. To know that God alone can be the secure home that we need in this fallen world that's entrenched in death. And he can be because of who he is. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
And what we're being taught here is that God never intended this world to be our primary home. Now, yes, this world was and is given to humanity as a house, as a good house. Yet this good house was given to point beyond itself to the one who gave it, to the great creator. Creation wasn't built and given to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts for an eternally stable home. You see, from the beginning, God put eternity into our hearts. We read that in Ecclesiastes. And what that means is that God put a longing in our hearts that he alone, the eternal God, can satisfy. Therefore, if eternity is in our hearts, because God put it there, how can a temporal creation, a creation that came into being at a particular time, ultimately and eternally satisfy us? It can't. Yet at the beginning of history, that's exactly what humanity believed. Humanity's sin was seeking to make this creation our sole home. Sin is replacing our creator with his creation. It's relying on creation to satisfy the deepest cravings of our hearts. But what do we get? What do we get when we look to creation alone to satisfy our longing for eternity? Our longing for God? We get death. We get misery. We get toil and trouble. We get a world marred by disease and disaster. We get lives, relationships, earthly homes that are broken. We get separation from God. So that left to ourselves, on our own, we experience God's wrath against our sin of seeking to live apart from Him who made us for Himself. And again, that's the sobering news. But with this sobering news comes surprising news. News that says that the God we spurned in our sin desires, still desires to be our home. And in fact, he's shown himself to be his people's home time and time again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home in all generations. And what the psalmist is saying is that throughout their history, God's people, however imperfectly, have discovered that there's nothing in this world. There's nothing in themselves, especially in their brokenness and death, that can sufficiently satisfy, that can provide them with a lasting home filled with love and acceptance, peace and security. The world can't give this. But what the created and now broken world can't give, God, the everlasting creator, can. Because as the prophet Habakkuk declares in his wrath, God remembers mercy. In what way? Well, you see, God allowed and used death, the death we sinfully invited in to swallow us up. So that in being swallowed up by death, it might become very clear that apart from God, we are utterly weak and empty. On our own, we are utterly weak and empty. We are dust. We're mere breath. We're like frail flowers that quickly fade. And God in his judgment, but also in his mercy, put sinful humanity in this position to teach us 
To teach us through the brevity and brokenness of life that apart from him, we have no lasting good. We have no lasting home. And my friends, we can trust the psalmist's word on this because, especially in this case, who is it? It's Moses, the man of God. In his life, Moses was personally aware of the power of God's anger against sin. He witnessed it against Egypt. He saw it displayed when Israel rebelled in the wilderness. He knew it in his being forbidden to enter the promised land because of his sin. But at the very same time, Moses was keenly aware of God's mercy. God's mercy that rescued Israel from Egypt that provided for them in the wilderness. It was Moses who was given a unique revelation of God when God in his mercy revealed his eternal name to him, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. I am the eternal, sovereign, holy, and unchangeable God, the God who's ever-present, ever-powerful, ever-faithful, ever merciful, and ever full of steadfast love. I am the God who makes and keeps covenant with those who trust in me. What is that covenant? What's well, simply and yet profoundly this. Here is God's covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's the covenant that he made with Abraham. It's the covenant he confirmed with Moses, and it's the covenant he fulfilled in Jesus. This is the covenant God's kept throughout all generations, even up to this generation. It's the covenant promise that God will be our home in this shaky and insecure world. And in light of God's revelation of himself, and in light of all of his saving actions in history up to that point, Moses could confidently say, Lord... You have been our dwelling place. You have been our home in all generations. Can you say that? Is this your confession of faith? Are you learning to try to give up finding lasting, a lasting and securing home in this world, in your stuff, in your achievements, and all because you found your sure home in God and his mercy? Have you recognized in faith that God is so serious about becoming our eternal home that he himself entered into our fading and fleeting existence in the person of his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That in Jesus, the God who exists from eternity to eternity became a human that in Jesus, the infinite became finite. The ancient of days entered time. The creator became a creature, and he did so to endure what? His own wrath against our sin. Jesus entered into this world to die miserably the death we deserved, and he did so on the cross, and all because God is merciful. That's the wonderful surprise of the gospel, that God has become our everlasting home in Jesus. And the beautiful truth of this comes out clearly in, in two little words that we find over and over again in the New Testament, words that show us what it means to be in covenant with God, 
that show us what it means to have God as our home. What are those two words? In Christ. In Christ. By God's surprising mercy, we've trusted in Christ so as to now be found in Christ, forgiven in Christ, accepted in Christ, hidden and ultimately protected, protected from God's wrath in Christ now and forever. In Christ, God is no longer angry with you. If you are in Christ, God is no longer angry with you. Now, yes, the remnant of God's judgment on sin still remains and that we're a people who will endure hardship in this broken world. We'll still face physical death. Yet in Christ, God is mercifully using all these things not to punish his children, but to transform his children into Christ's image. He's using all things to deepen us in the truth that we often sing and that we just heard in the offertory. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Is Christ your hope? Is Christ your confidence? Is Christ your home? Well, if he is, then one of your central and continual responses should be dependent prayer. Prayer that, that looks like Moses' own prayer in verses 12 to 17. And there you'll notice we have a simple prayer that flows out of Moses' previous meditation that every human, no, none are excused, every human in their sin is utterly empty. But God in his mercy is utterly full. Moses knew that on his own he was frail and fleeting. Yet, in God, he had found a fullness beyond comparison that alone could fill his emptiness and satisfy his deepest longing. And that's why in this prayer, he prays for a renewed measure of God's eternal fullness to fill his and our emptiness. And in praying, the first thing he prays is for the fullness of God's wisdom. Verse 12 Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And wisdom here isn't bare intellectual knowledge. No, it's practical knowledge. Knowledge that enables us to live in dependence on God as we seek to honor him, not here and there, but in our daily lives, in our words and in our actions, in our homes and at work, in our neighborhoods and in our play. Moses here is saying that we are to pray that God would give us wisdom to know, to recognize that our present days, although short, are to be lived to the glory of our merciful God, who in Christ is now our home. To number our days is to live them for Christ by seeing each day with its joys and sorrows, its highs and lows as an opportunity to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. So that as we rest in Christ, we find that our lives are more and more reordered around Christ because sin has disordered them. But coming to Christ because of his mercy, he's beginning to reorder our lives so that they're reordered around Christ and in turn renewed in Christ and all to reflect Christ. And in this context, reflecting the mercy of Christ that you yourself have been given. A heart of wisdom continually considers Christ. Do you want to be wise? Consider Christ. 
I want a little more wisdom. Consider Christ. A heart of wisdom continually considers Christ because in considering Christ, we consider the power of God's wrath towards sin. The wrath Christ endured for us so that we in turn might learn to loathe our sin. Loathing it because we love Christ who in his mercy first loved us. Lord, give us a heart of wisdom. Second, Moses prays for the fullness of God's satisfaction that alone can make us glad. Look at verses 13 and 14. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What a stark contrast between verses 13 and 14 and verses 3 to 11. As we've seen in verses 3 to 11, there we were given a realistic picture of our, of our lives under the power of God's anger. But here, we're given a picture of the power of God's pity. His pity that has given us a new home, characterized by his irrevocable love and our rejoicing. And notice the phrase, all our days. Yes, our days presently are short and often difficult. But in them, what Moses is saying is in them, pray that you would know God's steadfast love, his covenant love, his love that always sticks with his people. And knowing this, we can rejoice when that begins to grip our hearts that we have been given a love in Christ that will never let us go. And we began to realize that no matter what, no matter what, our faithful and merciful God will hold us fast. Because in Him, our home is found a love that's stronger than death. A love that consumed His own wrath on the cross. It's only His love for you. It's only His love for you that can make you truly glad. So pray that he would deepen you, that he would deepen you in his blood-stained, death-defeating, always-holding love. And there's one more. Moses finally prays there at the very end, the fullness, that the fullness of God's beauty would establish the work of our hands. Verse 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor, or better, the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. The work of God and our work. The work of God through Jesus and our work for God in Jesus. And in these two works, God's work and our work, are always meant to be held together. For God's work in Jesus on our behalf leads to and enables our work for God in the world. The work of showing what? The beauty of Christ. Of showing the beauty of Christ and his grace and mercy to the world. To the world that doesn't yet know it. To the world that's suffering under the reality of God's anger. He has called us to be witnesses to the mercy of God. And therefore, we're to pray, to be a congregation that prays and prays and prays that the beauty of the Lord Jesus would more and more 
rest upon us, mercifully rest upon us, that we might show Christ in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our vocations, in our hospitality, and in our life together as a church. You see, the great prospect at the end of this psalm is that the eternal God of verse 2, that the eternal God is able to establish an eternal work through our hands, the work of glorifying God in whatever our hand finds to do. Because you see, there's only one end, only one result to a life and to work apart from Jesus. What is it? The rubbish heap of death. Yet, in belonging to Jesus, we're assured that our work for the glory of our holy and merciful God will somehow and in some way last unto eternity. That's why Paul can say at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, My dear family, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, in all walks of life, your labor is not in vain. Now that's comforting news. We've heard the sobering news, the surprising news, which brings us the comforting news that God is for us. And that God is with us. And with it in mind, here's what I want us to do. Here's how I want us to end. Get your bulletin. Page 7. And I want us to pray together a form of Moses' prayer in verses 12 to 17. It's there in the bold at the very end. Let us now join our voices together in prayer. Father, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and as for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the beauty of the Lord Jesus, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Amen.